Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. And uh, as ever, I'm joined with uh, good old Gary Bain. we're, we're uh, of course, zooming, but uh, we, we're trying a couple of technological improvements. Uh, if I remember to press all the buttons, which I didn't last time. Um, so, what? Uh, hello, Gary. Say hello to me. Is Fred there? No, Fred's not here. Morning, Peter. He's uh, out in the garden, I think, at the moment, in the sunshine. Oh, good. Uh, Polluting uh, the so, fresh air. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sort of letting things brew. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, well, I, I will miss him. I will miss him. Uh, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about the evacuation of Hellas. Uh, now, why are we doing that? Well, the cynical amongst you might say it's because I've got a book coming out with uh, Matt McLaughlin's uh, living history on the evacuation of uh, Gallipoli. But you and I, Gary, we're, we're not cynical. We, we know that it's just our love of this subject. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's a rarely told story, actually. It's... Uh... You know, it's about time that somebody gave it the attention that you have. Uh, I notice our notes are, um, oh, at least two pages long. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I've excelled myself. <laughs> uh, normally you print it on toilet paper, don't you? In fact, you lost most of it last time in that, in that accident, you know, the... Uh, oh, the, the terrible sudden... one that we don't talk about, that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one, yes, yes, that one. Anyway, um, so we, uh, as, as some of you remember, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, did, uh, we did a long podcast on the evacuation of Anzac and Suvla. But uh, that, that, that doesn't, that's not the end of it, is it, Gary? Does, does... No, I mean, it, one of the questions in my mind, Peter, is, is, is why uh, <laughs> and who thought there was any advantage to staying on Hellas and uh, why the evacuation didn't take place at, at the same time. And perhaps we'll, we'll cover that off in, uh, in our discussions. Well, yeah, it's it's absolute madness, isn't it? Because what you have is you've still got about 40,000 men, you know, guns and uh, mules, donkeys, uh, cats and dogs, I expect, uh, all stuck at Hellas, the Hellas Peninsula, at the very end of, of the Gallipoli Peninsula. It's a Hellas is... Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's just... The, the question in everyone's minds is, what are we going to do now? <laughs> what, what are they going to do now? Um uh, 
what is going to happen next? And, and nobody seems to know at first. Uh, the British government, senior Royal Naval officers, uh, the army officers, they often don't know what's going on. The great British public. And, and of course, the Turks are sat there up on the Achibaba looking down on uh, Hellas and going, what's going to happen now? What on earth are they going to do? Um, now, the government had decided they wanted to hold Hellas. Now, why do you think that was? Why, why, why did that? What, 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 what reasons could the government have given for that? Well, I, I mean, I struggle. I, I'll be honest with you, Pete. I cannot work out what tactical uh, or strategic purpose holding Hellas uh, actually gave, other than perhaps um, uh, to, to deal with the submarine threat, which I, I don't even know if that was a consideration. It's a very odd thing to do having evacuated uh, Anzac and Suvla, in my opinion. It, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they've got this idea. Sometimes they, they you get a sort of thing that they're thinking of like a, a mini Gibraltar. Well, that's ridiculous, you know. Um, uh, do they need it for the war against submarines, uh, U-boats in, in the Mediterranean, Adriatic and, and the Aegean? Uh, you know, and the, the problem is the Turks can now concentrate all their forces, all their forces against the men at, at uh, Hellas, the Eighth Corps. Uh, and couldn't they, you know, there's a real fear they're going to launch some sort of gigantic offensive, sweep them into the sea, or they could just use the heavier guns that the, you know, Bulgaria coming into the war had allowed to, to you know, to, to arrive at, at, at the Gallipoli to sort of blast them off. And of course, you've, you've tipped your hand by this point, of course. They, they know what happened. You know, they know that we've withdrawn from Anzac and Zula. They might not know exactly how we did it, but they know that it's happened. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I just I just think they must have been sat there thinking, well, we, we can take this any time we want. What, the Turks? Yeah. yeah well, the, the Turks just, you know, and, and they're, they're just up there waiting. And, oh, dear. And, and uh, now, you know, all attention, in a sense, turns to London because the men on the spot... Now, who are they? Let's go through them. Uh, Charles Monroe, who's sort of commander-in-chief of the whole out in, in, the, in the Middle East... He uh, had replaced Hamilton, this. hadn't he? Yes. And uh, Birdwood, who is now in charge of the Dardanelles Army. And then there's Lieutenant General Sir Francis Davies, who's uh, Eighth Corps commander. Uh, he's often known as Joey. That can confuse people. I always think that's like a bit like a budgery guy. So uh, I've got this slight habit of thinking of Davies as a budgery guy, which I must uh, try and eradicate from my head and be a serious historian. Um, and the troops that have been withdrawn, uh, where, where had they gone, Peter, the ones from Anzac and Suva? Have any of them come round to Hellas? Uh, yes, some of them had. Uh, yes. Uh, should we go through? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, just one, one last point is even the Royal Navy had come on side, mate. You know, and they'd been being difficult. Uh, they'd started this stupid idea that they could take the straits if only the army had launched another offensive. But even their leaders, uh, we- Weems, uh, uh, Rosalind Weems and uh, Roger Keyes, had, had come round to it. Uh, and De Roebuck, who was back from leave, he was even more... Uh, in favour of evacuation. So everybody local wants to go by this time. Uh, the Turks are moving up their divisions, are moving up their guns. Uh, but something's changing uh, uh, back in London. And, and you know what changes. Think of it. What happens in December that makes a difference? Well, there's a couple of things, aren't there? So you've got Sir Douglas Haig, who's taken over from Sir John French uh, on, the, on the Western Front, who is very, very, very much a Westerner. And, of course, you've got uh, the, 
the lovely Sir William Robertson, who becomes Chief of the Imperial General Staff, who once more is very, very, very much a Westerner. And out and out, and out Westerners, aren't yeah, they? and and a, and a gruff, you know, very dominant figure is uh, is our Woolly. Um, you know, as well known that he he come through the ranks. Uh, he started uh, his career as a as a private, uh, and he at that time I think was a lieutenant general. So a very imposing man, very influential, and he was squarely behind it. And he sent a, a telegram ordering Monroe not to evacuate. There's a difference. As soon as he comes in, he says, make all preparations for an immediate evacuation. And that means, I mean, you know, that means that the local commanders know that the chief of staff's on their side. He's in their corner. Uh, and, and they also can realise what the likely decision, ultimate decision will be. So they all start working. They get their joint service staff committee, the, the Navy and the Army, that had been working so brilliantly on the Suvla Anzac evacuation, uh, and they, they, they start working out the plans. Uh, it's exactly the same. Uh, I hope people, are, I don't want to repeat too much stuff, so it's exactly the same. Uh, preliminary stage, uh, uh, intermediate stage, and then the final stage. Uh, they want the final stage to just take one night. Uh, but uh, but there's a sort of problem because the, the Royal Navy can only take 15,000 off in a night and Joey Davis uh, wanted 17,000 for that last day in case the Turks attacked. Uh, so they, they were going to have a two-day uh, two period. Now, you asked about the, 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 the movements of the divisions. Well, at, at Anzac, the 42nd Division, that's the East Lancashire Division, they were, and this is a technical term that I'm sure you're familiar with, utterly buggered. That You know, <laughs> they... They, they, they had to go. Uh, they were just knackered. They were ill. They were, they were depleted in numbers. That they, they, they had to go. Uh, so, so that they were withdrawn as soon as possible, and they were replaced by two of the brigades of the Thirteenth Division. Now, they, as you know, Gary, had come from Anzac. Uh, sorry, uh, Suvla, Suvla. Well, the borders. They would hold the left of the line. So that's upon Gully Spur and the rest of it. Then next to them. They, they landed the 29th Division. Can you imagine, Gary, what those people said, those old soldiers, if there were any left of the 29th Division? Back again. Or, back again. Lovely. Uh, no, no, no sort of criticism of a high command, you reckon? None at all. Arse and elbow springs to mind. <laughs> yes. But arse is often spring to your mind, Gary. Um, the, 50, the 52nd Division, as those uh, uh, lovely uh, Lowland Scots, uh, as I was reprimanded by no lesser figure than Derek Robertson for uh, accidentally, just for a moment, calling them Highland, Lowland, Lowland, Highland sausages. Well, I'm just going to call them sausages in future. So the 52nd Division. And then finally on the right, the Royal Naval Division were to replace the French on the, the French on the far right. It's worth noticing that the Royal Naval Division was nearly in as bad a state as the... I was uh, going to say, uh, they had been well used, if you'll pardon the expression, throughout crikey. the campaign. <laughs> Please don't use the word well-used in Royal Naval Division. <laughs> they are my favourite. Um, now, on the ground, it's obvious, obvious that the, the new Turkish guns and the better shell, you know, the improved shells were coming up. And you've got a quote there, haven't you? Uh, this is dates from the 27th of December, when the, the shelling's really bad. So who are you? Tell me who this quote's about. So I'm Corporal Harry Askin of the Portsmouth Battalion. Great big howitzer shells that came down on us at an angle of about 60 degrees and which made a noise similar to an express train dashing at full speed through a station. 
Every other noise was swallowed up in that great, terrifying roar. Whiz-bangs kept bursting on the parapet, but we never heard them, and then, when these big ones burst, it was more like an earthquake and an eruption at the same time. The earth would tremble and shake, and where the shell had burst, a great column of earth and smoke would shoot up a hundred feet into the air. Long after they had burst, huge lumps of earth and ire casting kept whizzing down to earth at a terrific speed. Now, you know, you can't be lucky all the time, and uh, one of the shells struck painfully home on a shelter that had about 20 men inside. And he goes on to say, One of these shells went right through the top and burst in the ground underneath, blowing the whole thing high in the air. There was a huge crater where it had been, and sheets of iron, beams of wooden boxes of ammunition, were blown for scores of yards. Most of the fellows were buried, and when got out, had to be taken away suffering from shell shock as well as wounds. Two men were blown to little bits. No matter who you looked at, they all had fear on their faces. Some chaps, who before this were apparently nerveless, were now shaking with fear. That's a terrible story. Uh, uh, I will put the link up to this book. We're going to use several quotes from the book, but I can't remember. It's uh, Harry Askin. Uh, I will put it, the link up when we when we post this up because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, now the government this time, very unlike last time, Gary responds quickly, partly because their professional advisers are united and their professional advisers are competent. The, the War Committee accepts Robertson's advice on 28th of December. He sends uh, he can send the ta- telegram, which begins the final countdown. And on so on 29th of December. Monroe, now knowing they're evacuating, calls a conference at Imbros, uh, the island just off the coast, 12 miles off the coast, to confirm the plans and, and to, to, well, basically Birdwood's plans are approved, you know, Birdwood and Davis's plans. Now, at this point, Davis makes a case. Davis is a bit up and down on this. He makes a case that he wants a two-night final stage, a bit like at, uh, at uh, Suvla and Hellas. Um, and so Birdwood eventually agrees that 7,000 men and 40 guns would go on the first night and the remaining 15,000, the maximum that the Royal Navy had quoted on, on the next night. Uh, and as many of the 20 guns as possible on the, on the last night as well. Uh, so, uh, so the final date was set. Now, the, it was set for the 8th of January 1916. Uh, and that was the final date. Uh, but but what's the big but? What do you think the big if is about this, Gary? What, what you know you you you've, you've heard the story of the last. Why do you think they're a bit vague in some ways about the final day? Well, it's going to have to be the weather. You know that that's the the great uncertainty here, isn't it? What's the weather going to do? What is the weather going to do? Now uh, we said we're not going to repeat stuff, but here's a quote from ha- Harry Askin. That's you, Gary, about the silent. Periods. Now, this was the great secret. Uh, yeah, let, I'll let you explain it. Go ahead, t- tell us what Harry Askin says. Cool. Harry Askin, Portsmouth Battalion. He says, we had a new stunt on. From midnight to 3am, everything in our line was silent. Not a shot or a light to be fired. And if anybody wanted to sneeze or cough, they must do it in a sandbag or go down to, a bit like me now. But it's also a bit like the COVID-19 things. They must do it in a sandbag or go down to the communication trench. The Turk was very lively at first. Then he too grew quiet and we could see the dim, shadowy forms of his patrols as they walked up and down. They kept very near to their own wire and no one ventured very near to our trench. 
Even had they done so, we would not have fired. Only in case of an attack in force were we to fire. So these silent periods, and then suddenly, after a day or so, or an, you know, they burst back into life. And this you described last time. It's a psychological trick, isn't it? it it's, it's conditioning. It's, uh, it's, they're, they're conditioning the Turks to expect the unexpected, and that, the, that silence doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Um, do, do you think it could work again? That's the problem. And I cannot get through to you how tense this is. I mean, they knew about the silent periods from last time. Yeah, but clearly the, the Turkish forces hadn't worked out what had happened, how they'd achieved it at uh, Anzac and Suvla. So I'm assuming they did the same thing. So, uh, you know, two or three nights of silence, nothing happens. Third night, the patrol goes out, only this time they get shot at. So so it's exactly the same. It's conditioning them uh, to the, these periods of silence being dangerous and that people are there. It's brilliant. Now, the, the, all the orders uh, are basically built on the principles of the experience from uh, Suvla and Anta. That's what's going on. Uh, but uh, one thing they'd noticed was you can get into a bit of problem if there's not a single commander, you know, because commanders come and go and they go off. So they put an embarkation zone uh, under the command of uh, Major General uh, Herbert Lawrence. Uh, he, you know, he's 52nd Division. He'd been with them. And uh, they, the naval aspects are all under the control of Vice Admiral Sir John Robeck. Just Sir John D. Robeck, uh, who'd come back from uh, leave. He's holidays. It's good to have holidays, Gary. I mean, you'd probably like a couple of days. Was he on holiday or was he unwell? I thought he was unwell. He, he's both, yes, both. Um, so successive lines of defence are planned. You know, they've got last-ditch defences. They're going to take the guns away one by one, reducing the batteries in size so there's just one gun. Six old French guns, which they, you know, they, uh, were going to be, uh, they were worn out. They'd be destroyed. Uh, and there was a, a cover, a cunning ruse. You love cunning ruses, you know, Blackadder-style ruses, or rather uh, his lovely assistant, Tony Robertson, or Black, uh, Baldrick. Um, they're, they're, the cunning ruse was they issued an order that the 8th Corps was to be replaced by 9th Corps. <laughs> That'll fool the Turks. <laughs> anyway, 1st of January, the French Colonial Brigade, the last of the French, leave and as, the, as the Royal Naval Division shuffle to their right. But they left their artillery batteries behind because they are the ones with the best and most, and most ammunition, and, and, and that's crucial. And they're going, now, when, they're going off to Salonika, aren't they? They go to Salonika to join the rest of the uh, the, the French Gallipoli Oriental Corps, uh, the, the French Corps. So uh, the Royal Naval Division moved to their right, and they take over the French positions overlooking the Kerov's there. Now the French had been, they'd been, in many ways, they're the unsung heroes of Gallipoli. They're probably the most deadly force due to their artillery. They'd fought like lions. They'd attacked again and again and again, and then after four months. <laughs> Ah, vaton culé, bugger it, dons français. Uh, they decided, sod it, and they'd gone to the live and let live. This is a, to me, this isn't a sign of cowardice, or this is a sign of a mature army who, when they realise they're not going anywhere, what's the point of having useless casualties? So you've got a quote from sapper Eric Wetton, number two field company, Royal Engineers. Tell me, tell me, Eric, what's going on? By all the rules of the game. The locality ought to have been an exceptionally unhealthy one and a happy hunting ground for snipers and whiz-bang merchants on both sides. Fortunately, however, our predecessors, jointly with Johnny, had devised a brilliant way out of the difficulty. 
On two trees between the lines, right down near the beach, were two flags. One French, one Turkish. As long as nobody from either side ventured beyond those flags, there was to be no rifle fire during the daylight hours in this particular region. The agreement was strictly adhered to, with the result that this portion of the line was an absolute rest cure. I there and then formed the resolve that if ever I should have occasion to run a private war of my own, I would organise it on similar lines. That is wonderful. And there was actually a well between... We'd been down there when we went to the French sector. Sadly, I then took you up the... Be careful what I say. (laughs) Took you up the side of the cliff. (laughs) Accidentally. Lost! (laughs) but um, there's a well in the middle where, where they're both sides used. It's, it's amazing. Um, unfortunately, pragmatism is not a British trait, uh, contrary to popular opinion in some cases. And the Royal Naval Division brought the sector back to life with the result that casualties started to rocket. Brilliant. And there's one great quote from Askin that says, uh, the French had no casualties, but they'd suddenly, uh, we brave lads got stuck in and we had 20 casualties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'll be. Turks are always willing to shoot back, you know. Now, the weather forecast is dodgy. Now, is that a surprise to you, Gary, at this time of year? No. I mean, again, we're not going to repeat what we said in the first podcast, but, you know, the, the weather comes in from the Russian steppes. So it's bad at that time of year. It's not just cold and windy. It's bad. It's, it's horrifically bad. It can be, definitely. There, there can be full-scale storms, as they'd had at the end of November. That's what... Uh, and... and, and Several times the waves had uh, had whipped up, uh, uh, destroyed harbour, fu- harbour, makeshift harbour, you know, the, the, the piers, piers. Mm. the breakwaters, because uh, they're only makeshift harbours, aren't they? Anyway, 5th of the January, given that the weather forecast, Davis gets more and more nervous and he says, hmm, was it wise to ask for a two day uh, thing? You've got, you know, two day final stage. And uh, he says, can't you get us all off in one night? Uh, so there's another com- conference, the 6th of January. That's only two days before. Uh, and can they invest? In, uh, can they evacuate all of them in a single night? You know, um, uh, and, and not in two stages. Well, the Navy are brilliant. You know, whatever you say about their desire to have another crack at the Straits, which is madness, they're brilliant now. And they they work out that if they can get, they've got block ships offshore. You know. Creating part like like at uh, Aramanch, creating part of an artificial harbour, if you like, just not as grand. If they could get the men out to there, they could get bigger ships there and therefore get them off quickly. Uh, and so, what they need to do is build a, a road out to the breakwater ships at V Beach, where it's some French old battleships sunk off, and at W Beach, uh, where to a couple of sunken colliers. Uh, could they build out, get those breakwaters dug in just a few days? Uh, you know, and it just adds to the problems at W Beach. I just want to tell you the problems. Just think of it. They've got heavy shells. Now, we've stood at W and V Beaches. The shells crashing down. You can see the Turkish batteries the other side of the straits, just a few miles away, well within range. It's a makeshift port. It's a core supply depot, not not a division, a core supply division at W Beach, V, uh, v Beach as well. They've got 30 days uh, food, rations and clothing for 40,000 men. It's a communications hub. It's a headquarters. And it's all placed under the command, uh, under Lawrence, each beach is given to a separate commander under Lawrence, who's the overall evacuation zone commander. And it's given to Brigadier General James O'Dowd. We're going to hear lots from him. Now, 
So you've got the key to everything is going to be this float, this 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 harbour, and they decide to build out uh, a floating bridge to get out. The 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 breakwater smashed uh, when they you know they build it and it's smashed. So they they they're going to build. Uh, a floating bridge. And this is Lieutenant Godfrey Taylor, 3rd Field Company, Royal Marine Engineers. We had a gap of about 200 feet, he says. No ship of any size could come alongside any of the piers. That's the piers at the beach. So troops have to get into barges and lighters and be taken out to the transports. If our breakwater had been completed, we would have run out a light pier or bridge to the hulks and troops could have marched over to the outer hulk, which is in deep water and could berth the large ships. The Navy produced an old Greek ship so they'd sink her and close the gap in the breakwater. They did it at night and to our horror in the morning we found it really did more harm than good as it diverted waves onto the line we wanted to bridge. So that's not the Navy's finest hour and that's a rarity because they do really well in everything else. So he comes up with this extemporised floating bridge. He says this, I was given the job of building the floating bridge. It was in six sections, 30 feet long, and a sloping gangway up the side of the inner hulk. The, you know, supported from the hulk and, the ga- and a gangway, <laughs> and a gangway through the inner to the outer hulk, alongside which came ships that could hold 2,000 troops each. You see the difference between a lighter that can hold 500 and a ship that can hold 2,000. And you get this Heath Robinson affair. You know what I mean by Heath Robinson. Just just a mad design of water tanks, metal drums, wooden barrels, all lashed together. Like one of those ra- rafts that students make for messing about in the park. You know, that kind of daft thing. And they did a test and they discovered that 1,000 men could get across the floating bridge in an hour. That's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, now, there's a key word that, that I missed there. In calm weather. But what if it's not calm? There's going to be trouble. Now, one of the staff officers working for, for, uh, for uh, what's his name? For God's sake. Uh, anyway, um, O-Sausage. O-Dowder. O-Dowder. Thank you. Not O-Sausage then. All right, there you go. Uh, it was Patrick, Lieutenant Patrick Campbell, who'd been left behind when the Ayrshire Yeomanry left. Now, he, uh, he, he gets very frustrated with all the problems. And I... Well, I don't know quite what he means in this quote. Uh, let go on. Read me the quote, Gary, and what do you think he means? We are engaged, as you may judge, in infernally difficult work, and on two nights the weather has played the deuce with everything. I never had more difficulty in keeping my head in my life, dealing at night with refractory piers, refractory boats, refractory Indians, and more refractory mules, and meanwhile shells at the rate sometimes of three to the minute from two different directions, from an, as many as seven guns, is just about the limit. Interesting use of the word refractory. I've no idea what he means. Uh, what could he mean? Anyway, there's just too much of everything. There's this mountain of stores to get off. Um, and they, they soon realise they're not going to get the bulk rations off. You know, it's, you know... Um, and 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 they start to you know there's a question should they allow looting or not now uh the a dowder is very strict at first and then a general comes i love this i put this in both of my books a general comes swirling up with his staff and says what's in that bale of stuff and finds its high value goods and loots it so a dowder says oh sod it oh i nearly said refractory there <laughs> Anyway, the exception, the exception being drink, I think, 
because they'd learnt from their lessons from Anzac and Subla, hadn't they? Around Let, let's do, we we could perhaps have a vote at the end of this podcast. Can we be trusted, me and you, to drink sensibly, Kerry? No. <laughs> As numerous people will say. So, give us a quote from. T- tell me what what you decide to do, Brigadier General James O'Dowder. I decided that I must remove this source of temptation from those who were still to come. I therefore sent my police in charge of an officer and armed with crowbars to the canteen, and they dealt very effectively with all that liquor. It was a very unusual sight, and one that brought tears to the eyes of some of the thirsty, <laughs> of some of the thirsty onlookers. <laughs> To see a stream of mixed liquor making its way down to the beach, some of it fizzing merrily. Also, the fumes were noticeable quite a long way off. That's really good. That's brilliant. Can you imagine those Tommies sat up on the... <laughs> We've been to W Beach, sort of sat in their dugouts up on the cliff, looking down, thinking, oh, bastards. <laughs> now, they separated out the uh, the munitions, the fuels, the explosives, and, and prepared everything for destruction. And he goes on to say... A large cavern in one of the cliffs jutting out near the beach was crammed to its mouth with all the surplus gun cotton, shell, small arms, ammunition, grenades, limbers full of shell, etc., etc., all ready to be blown up. There was about 25 dumps of stores drenched with petrol and oil, ready to be set alight by means of fuses, and all these fuses were timed to last for half an hour. Sounds quite dangerous to me, Gary. Yeah, that's that's quite... Uh, quite Quite a dangerous place to be living at that time, yes. I would have thought. Now, um, all the evacuation, all the preparations are, ta- are taking place. And Private Robert Loudon of the 1st 4th Royal Scots, uh, so he's 52nd Division, he leaves a bit of an account. Uh, is he 52nd Division? Yeah, I think he is. Uh, Normal activities, says Robert Loudon, were continued, even when wagons had to move about empty. Dummy guns replaced those taken away. Hospital and other tents were left standing. Dummy sentries took the place of any removed. Waterproof sheets, blankets, etc. over dugouts remained as before. Lamps and fires were retained. Strings of mules, mule carts and general service wagons were moved about, though their loads were minimal. Artillery and rifle fire were occasionally intensified as if an attack was imminent, but nothing happened. The Turks were kept puzzling what the British had in mind. And and they they blocked off all the, you know they 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 created routes to the beach and blocked off all other communication trenches all other trenches so that the Turks you know it couldn't get down then they prepared dangerous things you know dangerous mines trap wires all the rest of it, the usual booby traps everything else they set up self firing rifles we discussed them in the Suvla Anzac thing uh, trip wire mines all sorts of things were the Turks fooled gary well you're going to play the part of one turk uh, and on 4th of january you major sent well no you pronounce his name gary major sent artillery southern group in my opinion the enemy is withdrawing slowly but certainly i deduce that from the daily reports of the batteries and from my own observation many batteries are now only firing with one or two guns I personally believe that in 8 to 14 days, the enemy will have retired, if not earlier. But I am satisfied that this time he will not get away quite undisturbed or undamaged. In a sense, the Turks know they're going. They just don't know when. And of course, that's the only thing we've got left to fool them with, really, is when, you know. 
Um, now, Liman von Sanders, General Liman von Sanders, he's in charge. He's a commander of Turkish Fifth Army. And he's assessing reports like this. And uh, he decides to launch a test attack before launching a full-scale offensive. Now, at this stage, there's only 19,000 men, Gary, and 63 guns left. So they've already got half of them away. You know, it, the, and on the 7th of January, 1916, he, he launches a test attack. And he launches it on Gully Spur. That's between Gully Ravine and, uh, and the sea. So that's on the left as you look up the peninsula towards Achibaba. No, we're not doing the handy thing. Sod the handy thing. 7th of January, it bursts out. It, 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 the bombardment is referred to as, 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 as awful. Uh, you know, and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 1600, at the crescendo, two small mines are exploded under the trenches on Gully Spur, and then the Turks attack. And here we have ordinary seaman Joe Murray. <clears throat> he's with the 8th Corps Mining Company. He's originally Hood Battalion, Royal Naval Division, but he's been a detached as a miner, which he was, uh, and he's working, and he, he's near the North, 7th North Staffax, right at the peak, up by where the Nuri uh, Yamut Memorial is, uh, if those of you know Gallipoli. Uh, and he says this, the Turks charged over, shouting wildly. They had about 100 yards to cover before reaching my particular part of the line, though they had less ground to cover a little further to the left. Yeah, about 20 yards right, right to the end. Less than that sometimes. They came in their hundreds, some carrying timber for use in bridging our trenches. Perhaps they thought that after those hours of shelling, there would be no one to stop them. But they had not reckoned with the Staffordshire's of the 13th Division and eight sappers who could handle rifles as well as the rest. We should be able to. We have had plenty of practice. We blazed away at the advancing Turks. Some were becoming hesitant when our warships helped them make up their minds. I thought the Navy had deserted us long ago, and it was heartening to hear their salvos. We certainly needed their help. And that is a, a quote, not from the oral history interview I did. That's a quote from his book, which I fully, fully recommend. Gallipoli, as I saw it, also known as Gallipoli 1915 in the paperback version. Just buy it. Just read it. It's the greatest book. And listen to his, his uh, account on the Imperial War Museum website. The Turks didn't really press it home, did they, Gary? I mean, why do you think that is? Well, I should imagine they were quite nervous about uh, the, the response, and this was only testing the British. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me, was, was it enough to cause the British to consider pausing the evacuation? No, because in the end, it, it showed them what could happen for a start. And also, they had got away with it. And this was on the day before. You know, it's the 7th. It's the last but one day. On that night, they take off another 2,300 men and nine guns. Could their luck hold out? So on the last day, Saturday, 8th of January, that's going to be the last full day of the evacuation of Gallipoli, last day of Hellas. Uh, some 16,918 men were left. Uh, and their, their lives are at stake. They could all have been killed or captured. And it all depends on brilliant staff work. It depends on the weather. It depends on, it depends on the Turks not noticing. It depends... Oh, God. And, and let's be clear, the, the Turks are in the high ground. They do have visibility. You know, they're, they're up on Atibaba. They can see the British positions. Like a map, almost. You've been up there. There's a, a viewing station it's, up on Achibaba. It's almost like the back of your hand. You will not let it go, will you? <laughs> you will not let it lie. <laughs> anyway, um, so batteries... Are, I mean, there's batteries of guns all along that Asiatic coast. Uh, they could reach anywhere. There's heavy howitzers up on the shoulders of Achibaba. Um, the rough seas... Huh, 
Well, what a, what a, I mean, the Turkish infantry might not have fancied another attack, but they were there. They, they, they could surge forward and overwhelm any last ditches. Ditches, oh dear! But that day, that day, that Saturday, there's a sort of calm before the the the, the storm all across. And and you're Eric Sapper, Eric Wetton again, aren't you? Number two field company, Royal Engineers. So tell me, Eric, uh, how are you feeling? Yeah. So uh, Sapper Eric Wetton says that last day was rather queer. One would feel very much the same sensation on being left behind alone in a house that had been one's home after the family and the furniture had gone. Having nothing to do, we wandered round the line to have a last look round and take some photos, ate as much as we could possibly tackle to use up the surplus grub and spent a happy evening opening bully and jam tins and chucking them down a well, also biffing holes in Dixie's and generally mucking up any serviceable articles. Always an enjoyable task for the for the average soldier destroying things. You know, they destroyed their billets, they destroyed everything they could, uh, as invisibly as possible. Now, one thing, uh, the, the, the timetable is just too tight. This is not like at Suva and Anta. It's too tight. The beaches, the port facilities, it's too tight to get all these men off. And they can't take most of the horses and mules away. And this is a quote from Gunner Dudley Menno Lissenberg. He's 96 Battery, 147th Field Artillery. And he says this, oh, it's, uh, I mean, why do we get sentimental about animals and not about human beings? But there you go. I made a, f- this, this is what Dudley says. Uh, we know someone called Dudley. Dudders. <laughs> Dudley Jars, yes, Dudders, or Duddles, as he's known. Anyway, Dudley Menendo. He was. I bade a sad farewell to my Bonnie and hoped I'd see him again soon. He was going off the day before. I remember how he pricked up his ears and watched me as I walked away, slowly up the incline and then down the slope to the wagon line. I never saw my Bonnie again. I can't forget, though morbid it may seem, the sadness I feel even after all these years when I reflect on the fate of the these are dumb pals who, without knowing or understanding what it was all about, invariably gave us of their best and finally were shot and left to rot. Well, that, that's quite something, isn't it? And, and do you know what, Gary? I once went down Gully Ravine where a lot of them were kept, the horses, you know. You know, the cliff as you go in the ravine on the left. That's where they all were. And when I went up there after a storm, the place was r- full of uncovered horse bones. Uh, there were lots shot, hundreds. Anyway, during the day, the Royal Navy's trying to keep the Asiatic batteries busy, you know, trying to keep them quiet. Uh, the question is, it, it, it's like, you, this, this is an old phrase. Do you remember the longest day? The, uh, can you imagine, would they make it? Could they make it? Are they going to get away with it? Well, let's find out. The, men, the bulk of them were going from V&W beaches. That's right at the tip of the peninsula. The, pier, the, the piers at Gully Beach and X Beach are just, just no use. They, they can't be used in anything but flat, calm seas, and that, it wasn't going to be flat, calm. Uh, they, all they were going to send was 400 men from 13th Division and the divisional headquarters. They'd go from Gully Beach, so that's the only exception. Everyone else is going from V&W. They'd be divided into three echelons, just like at... Uh, you know, just like at uh, Anzac, we talked about that. 7,200 men would start off to get to V&W Beach uh, in time to be embarked at 20 hundred hours, 8 o'clock to you, uh, yeah, Gary. Uh, the second echelon uh, was a delightfully precise number. I love this. That's <laughs> not, not a bad, you know, 6,043 men. And, you know, we lo- I, that makes me smile 
But actually, that's because every man has to be accounted for. So they do know. Now, they would leave and embark between 22.30 and 23.30. So half past 11 at night, the last of that group would be off. The final echelon of 3,675 men would be evacuated from V and W and the as we mentioned, the exception, just that group, the last 400 from Gully Beach, between 0200 and 0300 on Monday, therefore, 9th of January. Now, the, the troops falling back to V Beach, they have no trouble, really. They march back, they get to the piers and out to, to the French block ship uh, and, then, uh, and also from the hulk of the River Clyde. Uh, which had been there since the first landing. Now, I've got a wonderful quote here. This is oral history from Joe Murray. And I love this quote because also it's so bloody ungrateful to the staff. And that, to me, sums up the attitude of people like you, Gary, who are ungrateful to the, those who try and guide them and help you. Your attitude to Matt is sometimes appalling. You Although know. I'm very grateful to you, Peter. Yeah, oh, you buggery. <laughs> anyway, here we go. This is Joe Murray. He's in a lighter and, and occasional shells coming across and, and the lighter doesn't seem to be moving and it, it's, it's starting to rock in the bay. We were so packed we couldn't move our hands up at all. I remember the chap in front of me was as sick as a dog. Half of them were asleep and leaning. We were packed like sardines in this blinking lighter. It was dark, of course. Apart from being dark outside, it was dark inside. No lights, no portholes. I remember a couple of fellows behind me pushing and shoving, and I thought to myself, do as you bloody well like. All of a sudden, the damn thing started to rock, and it did rock. There must have been a shell drop pretty close. And you know, we laughed at V-Beat shelling. Ha, ha, ha! And there we were. No reason for laughing. Those that were asleep were half awake. Those that were sick were still being sick. And, oh, dear me, it was stifling hot. They were so cramped in, that was, Gary. Uh, I thought to myself, why the hell don't we get out of it? We left there like a lot of cattle being dumped into a lighter and just pushed out to sea. And nobody gave a tinker's cuss whether we lived or died. That's just fantastic, isn't it? Is it fair? <laughs> no, not at all, really. The whole effort <laughs> is... was to get everybody off. But it's a great quote, isn't it? And now, up at the front line, he went off in, the, I think, the first or second wave, can't remember, just a moment. Up at the front line still, with a final party between, you know, right up to 0203 in the morning, is uh, able seaman Thomas McMillan. He's with the Nelson Battalion, Royal Naval Division. So he's right up by the French sector, right up overlooking Kerib's there. So, Gary, tell me what able seaman Thomas McMillan says. That all seemed normal to the Turk was proved by his periodical rifle flashes from various fire positions. This is to show that his sentries were not sleeping. Little did he know that, at the moment, his rifle crackle and his rap-tap-tap of his machine guns were to us the sweetest music under heaven. Had he remained silent, how ominous it would have seemed to the anxious watchers of the skeleton garrisons. And then... In his case, at 11.45, it was time for him to leave. And he says, Rushing on, I caught a glimpse of some of the boys who had lost their chance of escaping and who waited in death the arrival of the enemy. Dr McEwen and his faithful assistants had found old stretchers for them and with tender care had covered them over with blankets, leaving only their tackety boots to view. I remember reading that the first time. It's in an account held at the War Museum. And tackety somehow just just stuck, struck a, a chord. I don't know why. Now, behind them come the sappers, 
you know, he's not quite the last phase, is he? Uh, they're still they're they're out there till two two o'clock, nearly three o'clock in the morning. The sappers come behind. They're last. They're setting up all the move. They're pulling barbed wire thing into the trenches to block the trenches. They're laying the booby traps, the mines, uh, and the idea is to get what's it? A world of pain for the Turks should they follow them up closely. So they all get back to W Beach, V Beach. I do apologise. All according to schedule, nothing goes wrong. W Beach is different, isn't it, Gary? Uh, it's much opener. It's far more exposed to the wind, the breakers. And as you remember, the breakwater hadn't been finished and they were reliant on Lieutenant Godfrey Taylor's floating bridge to bridge the gap. Um, and, and there's no problem in one sense, in the sense that the front line is vacated with no problems. So we'll, we'll t- t- take that previous quote as covering this lot as well. Um, Brigadier General James O'Dowder describes how the troops were actually evacuated from W Beach, you know, in cooperation with the Navy. Now, t- 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 tell us this quote. We're going to have a bit from uh, uh, James O'Dowder now. The troops were met at the entrance of the defence works of the beach, which were on the top of the cliffs. From that point, they were guided to forming up places where they were sorted out and detailed for their respective troop carriers. Then they were marched to the beach by guides and either sent to the hulks by the floating pier or embarked in lighters alongside the jetties. I had to produce the men, animals and stores at the right time and at the right jetty or at the floating pier leading to the hulk. Now, this would have all been a lot easier if the the wind hadn't get up. And, and the Navy describe it as freshening... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the army are slightly more worried by it all uh, and uh, 2100 9 o'clock they'd already been a 35 mile per hour gale uh, and they got but they still got the first echelon away some 2000 men got across that floating bridge no problems but then there's problems getting the second echelon away uh, tell me about those problems Brigadier General James O'Dowder as the wind continued to gather force the lighters you often be- have to, hang on you you often have trouble with wind don't you i shall start again sorry i apologize again unreservedly no as the wind continued to gather force the lighters became more and more unmanageable till finally one of them charged the floating pier and damaged it badly however the navy were able to repair it and again we went ahead then, to make quite sure, two lighters crashed into the pier simultaneously and carried it away altogether. This time it was beyond repair, and so we had to do without. The work from the jetties was very slow compared with the continuous stream of men marching along the floating pier to the hulks and then boarding destroyers or Thames steamers. Oh, Jesus wept. You know, that, 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 I love the, 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 the humour in that. I, I mean, it's a, a dreadful situation. So they're now using the lighters, 500 men at, at most at a time, coming into those uh, piers. Now, those piers, Gary, you've seen them. We've been on, we've been on uh, W Beach, and the remnants of those piers are absolutely clearly there, aren't they? Yeah, uh, they are. Back me up on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, they're there. And uh, that's the thing about Gallipoli. You know, we've mentioned that you can see... Uh, um, Joe Murray's well at the entrance to Gully Ravine. But at W Beach, you've got the piers, you've got a, a, a damaged lighter from the storm of, of November. It's all still there. Even a couple of big dugouts which are hidden. Uh, but it's, it's amazing. Now, you've got a pit. You know, I do feel sorry for, for the engineer officers and, and men struggling with the waves pounding to try and get that thing, you know, with lighters crashing about. But there's also a great Tommy proof story. 
<laughs> were that do you think the magazines that had been set up, you know, those huge, the cave full of explosives, do you think that was Tommy proof? Absolutely. What could possibly go wrong? I'll tell you, Gary. <laughs> this is Lieutenant Owen Steele of the Newfoundland uh, re- Regiment. Uh, about midnight, one of the magazines, which was stored, fire rockets, flares, fuses, small explosives, etc., was accidentally set alight by a careless man with a candle. Oh, For a time... A candle. <laughs> <laughs> Not a cigarette, Gary. No, a candle. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. For a time, things seemed serious, for a very large volume of flame was shooting out the mouth or entrance of the magazine, and frequent explosions, some of them very heavy, were occurring. There was a danger of it spreading to the other magazines, which contained quantities of heavy explosives, shells, etc., and if such occurred, it would not be safe on any part of W Beach. I, I absolutely love that, that the idea. And clearly somebody had gone in for a, a crafty fag away from the officers. Probably Lance yeah, Corporal, was... to be fair. <laughs> and what I love about it is, is we'll never know who did it. We'll never know how. But it's just that's part of the fun of history, thinking what things are like. Well, there goes, anyway. there goes your 30-minute fuse. <laughs> <laughs> now, over at Gully Beach, now remember the last, there was two lighters there to, uh, to get off the last 400. And, and one of them was Major General Sir Stanley Maud. And, and he was going to go off from W Beach. Now, you, you're, uh, I'm going to be Major General Stanley Maud because I think it's good that I should be a Major General. You were, you were a Brigadier General, so I'm going to be a Major General. Uh, could you straighten up, please, Gary, and salute? We had all the kit of headquarters with us, for which we had provided two steamboats at Salitas. Yeah. <laughs> but as the horses had been shot and the vehicles destroyed, it was somewhat of a problem to get it along. Luckily, however, the Assistant Director of Medical Services remembered that there were t- three or four vehicle stretchers lying handy, and these we got and loaded up. We could not go by the beach route, it was too heavy going, so we started uphill to the plateau. Very heavy work it was. We puffed and puffed like compasses. What's going on? Where's he going? Why has he not gone to the beach? I'll tell you why, Gary. Because, in typical fashion, one of the lighters, it's completely open beach, no no protection at all, had been smashed ashore. Uh, I know exactly where that lighter is. Do you know how I know where that lighter is, Gary? No, Peter. It's still there. The wreck of that lighter is still there on Gully Beach. And Maud, Maud had sent the, the, the other men, and just with his headquarters, had gone on this mobile stretcher and was coming across this, you know, that slight hill between uh, Gully, Gully Beach and uh, Beach. It's quite a way, though. It's about a mile, I'm guessing, but it's a, it's a fair way. Now, this sent, you know, all their kit, he'd gone back, you know, it was a headquarters kit, has never been accepted by other historians, has it? And here's the version given it by the official British historian, uh, Colonel Cecil Aspinall, who's on the staff at Gallipoli, but wrote as Aspinall Oglander, the history of the campaign. What does he say, Gary? He says... Some distance from Gully Beach, the general had discovered that his valet had been left on the stranded Valet, that's Valise. Valise, thank you. (laughs) Had been left on the stranded lighter, and he and his staff officers had gone back with a wheeled stretcher to find it. 
So, so not the official headquarters papers or orders or, or, or gear. This was his personal valise, according to uh, many. Now, back on the beach, James Dowder is going bloody berserk. Absolutely berserk. Because he's been told by the last wireless message from, uh, from Gully that, that they're coming. But they're not arriving. Where the refractory hell are they? Uh, anyway, uh, he is, uh, he's alleged to append of a parody of Coming to the Garden Moored by Alfred Tennyson. I know you know the original. Uh, and Birdwood got a copy of this and he put it in his uh, bio- autobiography. And you're going to read it for us, are you? Are you going to sing it or read it, Gary? Coming to the Garden Moored. I'm going to read it for you. Oh, coming to the lighter moored, the fuse has long been lit. Oh, coming to the lighter moored, and never mind your kit. The seas rise high, but what care I, I'd rather be seasick than blown sky high. So come into the lighter moored, or I'm off on the launch alone. I just love it. And, it, you know, and, 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 and you know, <laughs> anyway, at last they arrive. You know, this is like three or four hours after the frontline trenches had been abandoned. Uh, go on, Ed. So uh, tell us. Uh, Brigadier General James O'Dowder says... We had not gone 200 yards from the jetty when the expected terrific explosion nearly blew us out of the water. Thousands of tons of debris, rock, shell cases, bits of limber wheels and other oddments hurtled over our heads. I could never understand how we escaped injury. The men had been battened down in the hold of the lighter and were safe, but the few of us who were on deck escaped, I imagine, because we were within the cone of the explosion, i.e., The massive stuff fell all around us like the outside of an open umbrella. At the same time, the beach was lighted up as if for a carnival and would have delighted Mr Brock of fireworks fame. It truly was a magnificent sight. So the last lighters had just got away from the beach just as the explosion happens. They're a matter of a couple of hundred yards away. Uh, You know, all the accounts say they'd only just got away. The explosion is gigantic. And do you know what? This is one of the most interesting things about visiting the battlefield. Uh, I was there with uh, a, a, an arm chap and he said, uh, Pete, uh, Pete, what's that? that? That there. And he pointed to a, a sort of, I thought it was just sort of a cavey, uh, with no, a cave with no top. Uh, it's sort of a strange valley. And it's at the back of W Beach on the right-hand side. <clears throat> You've seen it, I've Gary. I've seen it, yeah. And he explained, uh, that's, uh, that's, there's been a huge explosion here. And he pointed round where we were. And there were all the boulders. There was a debris field. Uh, that's, for me, Gary, that's real history brought to life. When you stand there and think what it must have been like when that, that, that cave blew up. Because it was a cave and now it's a valley, wasn't it? You, you, isn't it, Im- is it, isn't a, it impressive? Is it a valley or a valise? <laughs> You'd think we'd set that up, wouldn't you, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> do, do ladies, yes, said ladies, do listen to this because ladies are interested in military history, and and uh, and uh, you know, so that's great. So um, the Gallipoli campaign is over at last. It was a triumph. Everybody said, and this is all part of this great British thing of making a triumph out of the most appalling disasters. So, like the Battle of Isandwana, I never can pronounce that. Isandwana, Mister, uh, uh, we distracted with what, Gary? What, what do we? What, what do you know, Mud? Yeah, you know, what, what distracts us from the Battle of Isandwana? I have no idea. You, you just, you just ever since that whole valley's incident. You've been uncooperative. It's the it's Rourke's drift. 
you know. It, oh, and, and, and it's like we make a big thing about you bastard. It may, we make a big thing out of uh, charge of the, the light Iraqi. brigade. Charge of the light brigade. What else? Glorious failure. Dunkirk. Yeah. You know, we and uh, you know, but in truth, so we rebadge it not as running away, Gary, <laughs> but more as an inter- an incredible, incredible achievement that de- you know defies belief. But it was amazing, despite the Turks being forewarned, and some of our trenches were only yards away, and I mean two or three yards. And they had so that was a bit like Anzac, and yet they also had to go back three or four miles, which is a bit like at Suvla. So they've got the worst of the problems of Suvla and Anzac. The Turks are forewarned because Suvla and Anzac had happened. You know, all our tricks had been done once, but they somehow get away. Thirty-five thousand two hundred sixty-eight men, three thousand six hundred eighty-nine horses and mules, and one hundred twenty-seven guns. They leave behind one British six-inch gun and six old French guns, uh, and ten old worn-out fifteen-pounders. Now we've seen some of those French guns again, Gary. This is the point of going to Clipley. Where are they? Uh, in a field. They're in a field. <laughs> yeah, they are in a field. But they are literally. You you stop at the side of a road. You walk down a track, probably about two hundred meters. And there they are in the gun pit still. Some of them are in some of them are in better condition than others, clearly because they've been blown up. They've, they've been spiked. Um, they, they blew they blew the barrels off. They blew off, the didn't barrels they? off. Yeah. Um, but one of them, the it didn't work, and they didn't have time to do it again. And that gun is intact. Yeah. But the guns are amazing, aren't they? They've got the date. They're French guns. They've got the they dates are. on eighteen sixty sausage. You know the rest of it. Yeah, um, I, I love that. And I think it's worth pointing out these these are not part of some uh, museum or uh, you know tourist site. They're just there. You know, there's no they <laughs> they're just there. Uh, and you know, being the grown-ups that we are, we all immediately climb all over them and have pictures taken. Um, but with legs, legs astride, legs obviously. astride the, the barrels, yes. But you know, that's the thing about the uh, visiting the, the peninsula. And I once again heartily recommend anybody to go. You fall in love with the place. Um, you do. But it, it it's real history. You can see it. So. Uh, now, it's all better than anyone could have imagined, uh, 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 but it still doesn't change the fact Gallipoli is a crushing defeat and a triumph, an absolute triumph for the Turks. We return because we win the war. We actually go back to the peninsula in 1918 and we control it till about 1922. Uh, but I think Birdwood had been lucky. Now, why is luck important for generals? Who, who thought luck was important for generals, Gary? Well, Napoleon um, had... had mentioned that he'd rather have a lucky general uh, it, it's incredibly important because the, the all of the plans assume everything's going to go your way so the assumption is the weather will go your way the assumption is that the turkish will behave in the way you want them to but of course the luck is that they do you know the 7th of january attacks if they'd have pressed that a little more i think the Turkish may well have been successful there. And I think Birdwood was lucky in his staff as well. I, I, I just want to... What, we paid a lot of tribute to him in the last podcast, and he isn't in one sense directly involved, but it is his plans that they follow. And I want to mention him, Brigadier General Brudenell White. You know, he had a great career in the army and the rest of it, but I just think he deserves all the credit for, for the original plans, which are as fundamentally what, what are followed. 
Yeah. Now, do you think the Turks let them go, Gary? Do you think? Do you think they did? Well, I doubt that. Um, you know, we we've we've discussed before about how good the the Turkish were in defence, but you know, this was an opportunity for them to to throw the enemy into the sea. So I doubt that very much. Me too. And and the senior officers' accounts, whether they be the German Limon von Sanders or Canon Geiser, they were senior commanders, or from the accounts of the middle-ranking Turkish officers uncovered by Harvey Broadbent in his book Gallipoli: The Turkish Defence, none of them. None of them seem to realise what's happening. They don't. They find out when the British open fire next morning and try and destroy the, uh, the, the what's left of the dumps. Um, did some fr- frontline Turks realise what's happened? Well, we've discussed this before. Uh, and I think honesty is the best policy. We don't know, do we? We, we don't know what's in the mind of those uh, uh, frontline Turks. But all we can do is look at what we know about human nature. And what would you say we know about human nature? Absolutely nothing. Thank you, Gary. I really will never correct you in your pronunciation of anything ever again. <laughs> well, what I know is that the the conditioning had worked, you bastard. Uh, uh, I think they thought if they let their officers know that they're suspicious of the of the silence that's fallen, they'll be ordered forward into an area where there could be rear guards. There could be uh, there could be it could they could run onto a mine, a booby trap. Uh, they, they, the world of pain, the very world of pain the, the British uh, intended for them. Uh, but that's speculation. Uh, but I think, you know, as they sailed away, the Royal Navy bombarded the beaches, you know, uh, the, as the British sailed away, uh, trying to f- destroy the rest. But there's m- tons and tons of stuff left this time. They could not get away the low value stores. They couldn't get away the animal. I think there's 900 odd poor bloody horses and mules killed. Uh, 907. That's a lot. Think of them mounded up in one big pile. You know, uh, it's awful. And so I'll go, the last word we're going to live, leave with uh, who uh, Major Ahmet Nuri Bey of the 42nd Regiment. And he found a true appreciation of their achievement. He was wondering, if he'd, been, he'd been facing the French sector, you know, over on the right. And he's walking through the trenches and he said that he found this. This is what he said. After the enemy ran away, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't evacuate, they ran away. I walked around the enemy trenches ac- uh, across from us. On a road, the French had written, L'honneur, O Turk. The honour belongs to the Turk. And let, let's leave the evacuation as ever with appreciation that the Turks won at Gallipoli. We were lucky to get away. And, and it was so fortunate we got away with no loss of life. Any final words, Gary, other than abuse? Actually, got a question, Peter. You mentioned, you know, we left so much there. What happened to the River Clyde? The River Clyde, we left that, and yeah, it was uh, it was uh, refloated, uh, offered to the British government for, uh, and they refused it. So it worked as a Spanish tramp steamer till the nineteen sixties when it was coming to the end of its useful life. And it was then offered to the British government again, who in true British government fashion said, no, I don't think so, mate. It's no value to us. So it was scrapped. Uh, That's a terrible shame. Anyway, on that note, I hope you'll consider buying my book, uh, The Evacuation of Gallipoli, coming out on Living History, uh, when it's out in, uh, well, uh, late August, September. Uh, You might buy one, Gary, might you? Yeah, I'm going to send my valet down to get it. I'll have that note. You can bugger off. Cheers, Cheers Gary. Bye.
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?